This is Hinter Tales. I'm Rachel Dunstan-Muller, with stories of curious people, places, and events from the margins of history. Maurice Bailey would not have described himself as a courageous man. In fact, quite the opposite. He'd had a strained relationship with his very strict British parents, had stuttered as a child, and had spent his adolescence feeling both insecure and isolated. He was still shy and self-conscious as an adult living in Derby, England. So when a friend asked him, one Sunday in 1962, to be his temporary replacement as a navigator in a local car rally, with a young female driver Maurice had never met, he, of course, tried to say no. But his friend was very persuasive, which was how Maurice found himself waiting at the appointed spot after all. With every passing moment, his anxiety increased until it was all he could do not to run away. But he remained rooted to the pavement, his heart beating faster with each approaching car. Marilyn Harrison finally pulled up in a Vauxhall Cresta. She was younger and prettier than Maurice had expected, which did not help matters. Maurice was immediately smitten by Marilyn's pretty eyes, her warm conversation, even the fragrance of her perfume. But, of course, this only served to make him even more self-conscious. The rest of that day was a disaster. Maurice's job was to navigate while Marilyn drove, but if there was a mistake to be made, Maurice made it, going north when he should have gone south, turning left when he should have turned right. He tried to compensate by offering to buy petrol at the end of the day, only to discover, after the tank had been filled, that he didn't have enough money to cover the bill. He was mortified. He was so embarrassed, in fact, that he forced himself out of his comfort zone and sent Marilyn a long apology letter and the biggest bouquet of flowers he could afford. Marilyn replied to his letter and phoned him at work to accept a follow-up invitation to dinner. Things were going well enough a year later that Maurice worked up the courage to ask Marilyn to marry him, and to his amazement, she said, yes. The first few years of the Bailey's marriage were uneventful. Marilyn worked as a tax officer while Maurice worked as a printer's clerk. But as the years passed, they began to fantasize about a life beyond Derby. It was Marilyn who first suggested that they sell their house and buy a yacht instead and sail it all the way to New Zealand. Maurice was a little reluctant at first. He loved sailing, but he also appreciated the security of home ownership. But Marilyn convinced him in the end, and in 1968 they sold their home and contracted a boat builder to build them a 31-foot yacht. There were a few unforeseen delays along the way, but in late June 1972, the Orlin set sail. Everything went smoothly. 
In fact, even better than expected. Their new vessel was everything they'd hoped, and by the beginning of February 1973, they'd made it all the way across the Atlantic to Panama, where they overhauled their rigging and provisioned themselves in preparation for the Pacific Ocean. Their next port of call was supposed to be on one of the Galapagos Islands, about a ten-day sail to the southwest of Panama. But on their sixth day out, despite clear skies and calm seas, disaster struck. They'd passed a whaling ship before dawn, the first vessel they'd seen since leaving Panama. And a few hours later, just when they'd started preparing breakfast, they felt a jolt, like a small explosion on their port side. They'd been rammed by a large whale, which left a disturbing trail of blood in its wake. But their concern for the injured mammal was quickly overshadowed by concern for themselves. The Orlin now had a gaping hole beneath the waterline, and although they worked frantically to plug it and pump out the water they were taking on, after 40 minutes they were forced to confront the truth. Their beautiful vessel was going down. Working efficiently and surprisingly without panic, Maurice prepared their life raft and a small inflatable rubber dinghy while Marilyn collected the essentials, food, gear, water containers, their emergency kit. Just 50 minutes after the whale strike, 10 minutes after recognizing the boat was going down, they left the Orlin for the last time and then together watched it sink beneath the ocean. Their first response was shock, of course. The Orlin was more than a boat. It was their home, their dream of a great adventure, the result of years of preparation and work. And all of this had just disappeared. But as heartbroken as Marilyn felt, she wasn't afraid. The water was calm, they were close to a well-traveled shipping lane, and they had a good life raft and decent supplies. As far as she was concerned, they would just have to sit tight for a week or two, maybe as much as a month, and they'd be able to flag down a passing boat. It wasn't going to be comfortable, it wasn't going to be fun, but she had no doubt they would survive. Maurice, on the other hand, did not share his wife's certainty, but he kept his fears to himself. The new castaways spent their first day getting their salvage supplies organized, taking stock of what they had, and it was fairly significant. They had a life raft with a canopy to shelter them from the weather, an additional rubber dinghy to hold their supplies, assorted tools and dishes, binoculars, a camera, a compass and sextant, oilskin jackets and trousers, a first aid kit, assorted buckets and containers, and enough food and water to last them at least 20 days, if they rationed it carefully. It was pretty cramped inside the circular life raft, just four and a half feet in diameter, 
which meant there wasn't enough room to stretch out or to both lie down at the same time. They solved this dilemma by taking turns curling on the floor at night for three hours at a stretch, while the other person would sit hunched up, keeping watch for passing ships. Their first meals were pretty spartan, but it was their thirst that was almost intolerable. Their initial ration of water was just one pint each per day, two cups, in the heat of the sun. The raft's canopy protected them from direct exposure to the sun's scorching rays, but it was sweltering inside during the day. Using dead reckoning and the chart they'd brought with them, Maurice calculated that they were very near a shipping lane. The prevailing winds and currents were taking them to the northwest of their original destination. They would not reach the Galapagos Islands if they allowed themselves to drift. But Maurice believed that they might be able to row south sufficiently that they could alter their course just enough to reach one of the islands after all. Rowing during the heat of the day was impossible, so they waited until night, each taking turns in the dinghy, hauling the life raft and its remaining occupant along behind for a two-hour stretch, multiplied by a total of four shifts through the night, two shifts each. It was slow, painful, laborious work, which left them both exhausted, blistered, and even more dehydrated, despite doubling their water rations. At the end of the third night, and 24 hours of rowing, they had only gained 10 miles to the south, while the current had taken them more than a 100 miles west. In other words, no matter how hard they rowed, the current was not going to let them reach the Galapagos. It was a major disappointment, and there were still many more blows to come. As the week progressed, the weather got even hotter. At one point, they found themselves in an electric storm, but though lightning flashed and thunder rolled over them, there was no rain to ease their thirst. But then, on their eighth morning, they spied a small ship. It was the moment they'd been waiting for. The ship was still about two miles away, but its course was bringing it closer. Maurice got a smoke flare ready, and when the ship drew even with them about a mile away, he tore off the tape and struck it with the igniter. Nothing happened. The flare was a dud. He quickly ignited his second flare, and this time it worked. But there was no response from the ship. They tried a third flare, but again, there was no sign that the ship had seen it. The Baileys could only watch in disbelief as their hope of rescue got smaller and smaller, finally disappearing on the horizon. It was a moment of reckoning. They were running out of food, running out of water, and they just used half of their flares unsuccessfully. If they were going to survive, they were going to need to draw on deeper reserves of resilience and resourcefulness. 
There was food around them in the water and the sky, but to their immense regret, they had somehow neglected to repack their fishing gear in their emergency bag before leaving Panama, which meant that they now had to improvise. Their first catch was one of the many prehistoric-looking turtles that were constantly swimming around and beneath them. In fact, the turtles had become a nuisance, even a potential threat. The barnacles and spines on their backs threatened to damage the thin floor of the raft. No matter how persistently Maurice and Marilyn tried to push them away with their paddles, the turtles kept coming back. Now, instead of chasing them away, the Baileys worked together to grab hold of a turtle and flip it into their dinghy. I'll spare you the details of how they killed and butchered that first turtle, but I will say that it traumatized them enough that they both pledged they would never be responsible for another animal's death if they ever made it back to land. But that first turtle did provide them with four large steaks from each shoulder, which, of course, they had to eat raw, as well as bait for fishing, which they accomplished by cutting stainless steel safety pins and bending them into hooks. And so the days passed, catching turtles, catching fish, watching for ships, reading and rereading the four books they'd brought, writing in their journals, playing cat's cradle with a piece of string, even playing dominoes and cards made from strips of paper taken from their logbook. Thirst continued to be a constant preoccupation. So when it finally rained for the first time on their 17th day adrift, they were ecstatic. They engineered a way to funnel rainwater down the canopy of their life raft, through the ventilation chute, into a bucket. But the first bucketful was so contaminated by chemicals from the waterproof rubber coating that they had to empty it overboard. An hour later, the water was a little better, and they were able to pour the contents of the bucket into a smaller plastic container. But it was a painstaking process. The rain and cooler weather came with a trade-off, however. They now had a supply of fresh water, but they were also facing rougher seas, which meant that seawater was constantly pouring into their raft, and so it had to be bailed out continuously, day and night. As the weeks passed, the challenges kept coming. They punctured their inflatable dinghy with one of their makeshift fishing hooks, and were unable to patch it successfully, which meant that it had to be reinflated with their hand pump every 12 hours. Just a few days after that, a large spinefoot fish left a row of tiny holes in the side of their life raft, which meant that the lower tube had to be constantly reinflated every 15 to 20 minutes. Even then, the floor constantly sagged and creased, which meant that they were unable to find a comfortable position in the raft for more than five minutes at a time. Not surprisingly, their health deteriorated quickly. They were both slender to start, and within weeks they were gaunt and emaciated. 
Despite a decent supply of raw turtle and fish, they both experienced periods of extreme sickness as well. Even when they were relatively healthy, the constant chafing and exposure to seawater left them both covered in ulcerated sores. To add insult to injury, large sharks would sometimes approach the floor of the raft at high speed, jarring the bailey's spines and leaving them bruised and aching. If the constant pain and discomfort weren't enough, there were moments of extreme danger as well. Huge storms that went on for days, threatening to swamp or capsize them. On two separate occasions, giant waves threw Maurice out of the dinghy, but in both cases he was able to fight his way to the surface and climb back on board. Marilyn couldn't swim, so she likely would have drowned if she'd ever been thrown into the water. If the challenges kept coming, so did the ships. Sometimes a few days apart, sometimes a few weeks. But no matter what Maurice and Marilyn did to try to get their attention, they were unsuccessful time after time. They set off their remaining flares, flashed SOS with their flashlight, made signal fires in a tin with rags and kerosene, and waved their oilskin jackets until their arms ached. Most of the ships continued on their courses without any deviation, but they were certain the fourth ship had seen them. From a distance, it appeared to be some kind of military vessel. It stopped, about half a mile away, and seemed to be turning towards them. It turned 180 degrees, waited, and then turned 180 degrees again, resuming its original course. Undoubtedly, someone on the ship had seen something, then lost what they'd seen in the waves. At the time, the life raft and dinghy were directly in line with the sun, which would have made them extremely difficult to see at that distance. At any rate, Maurice and Marilyn could only watch in despair as the ship left them behind. Days turned into weeks then weeks, into months. The Baileys were wasting away, malnourished, exhausted, covered in sores. There were periods they could barely move. And yet, even in the midst of their trials, there were moments of transcendent beauty. A sperm whale surfaced beside them, within touching distance, meeting them eye to eye. It remained there, just staring for what seemed like an incredibly long time, but was perhaps only ten or twenty minutes. Then it dove vertically, with barely a ripple. On another occasion, a whale shark, one of nature's rarest and most graceful creatures, accompanied them for an entire morning. During the day, they were surrounded by sea life, both beneath and all around them. At night, they listened to whale song and drifted under a canopy of stars. 
For their first two and a half months as castaways, ships passed within sight every few days to every few weeks. But after the seventh vessel, on the seventy-fifth day, the ship stopped appearing. Marilyn never gave up. Even as the weeks passed, she believed that a higher power watched over them, that it was just a matter of time before they would be rescued. Maurice did not share his wife's faith, and in fact he had entered an altered state. The world had shrunk. They were part of the sea now. The animals were their neighbors. He could no longer even imagine reintegrating into human civilization. So when Marilyn announced that she could hear a ship approaching on the afternoon of June 30th, their 118th day in the life raft, he didn't believe her at first. It had been 43 days since they'd seen their last ship. They both waved their jackets, but when the ship seemed to be going past, like all the others before, Marie stopped waving and slumped to his knees. Stop waving. Save your strength, he told Marilyn. But she didn't stop waving, even as the ship got further away. Please come back, Marilyn shouted. Please! Then suddenly she stopped shouting. Maurice could only stare in disbelief. The ship was returning after all. It was a Korean fishing boat, the Weolmi 306, on its way back to Korea after 30 months based around the Canary Islands. The crew of the Weolmi showered the Baileys with kindness and excellent care. And they needed that care. Maurice and Marilyn were both emaciated, too weak even to stand. The Weolmi made a detour on their way home dropping their fragile passengers off in Honolulu. The Baileys became celebrities, and once they'd regained their strength, they set about turning their journal entries into a book. The royalties from this best-selling book funded their second yacht, the Orlin II. That's right. Despite everything they'd endured, the Baileys returned to sea at the first opportunity. In fact, they'd begun sketching and planning the Orlin II while they were still in their life raft, waiting to be rescued. And it was one of the activities Marilyn credited with keeping them sane. The Baileys studied whales in the seas off Patagonia and undertook several more voyages over the next five years. They eventually settled on the south coast of England, where Maurice bought a boat chandlery and Marilyn ran a garden center. Cancer took Marilyn in 2002, when she was only 61. Maurice lived a solitary life after Marilyn was gone. She was his only family, his one true companion. 
A few years before his own death in 2018 at the age of 85, Maurice was interviewed about the adventure he and Marilyn had shared four and a half decades earlier. He credited Marilyn for her unflagging faith and for sustaining his own will to survive. He also said that given the chance, he would relive those 118 days. If I knew someone was going to come and collect me after four months, he said, I would do it again. It was a wonderful experience. I had a number of sources for this episode, including interviews of Maurice Bailey conducted by Alvaro Cerezo, a Spanish explorer and the creator of Doc Castaway. But my primary source was Maurice and Marilyn Bailey's book, 117 Days Adrift, published in 1974. The Baileys initially made an error in counting their days at sea, and this is reflected in the title. In fact, the Baileys were afloat in their life raft for a total of 118 days. This episode of Hinter Tales was written, narrated, and produced by Rachel Dunstan Muller, with music and sound effects by zapsplat.com. Learn more about my work at racheldunstanmuller.com. 